Imagine living in a time where six men kill themselves every day. And if we thought that's gonna happen in 100 years, it sounds pretty gross, but it's actually now. Uh, you know, originally fake news starts as a critique of news that's considered to be inaccurate. It's become a term that's used now to dismiss any news that you don't like. And around one in seven young Australians uh, has a mental health condition. They are our most unwell generation that we've had. People don't accept the climate science. So if I think about how we're going to save the world, art enables us to move in that direction. What happens to the world if we can no longer make time for art and culture? At times when our most basic needs are at threat, can we even afford to consider art, let alone lament its loss? How does the world look and feel without new art being created? In this episode, we hear from two very different experts on this topic. The artist Callum Morton, who predicts an even more difficult future for creators in a world where art is a luxury. And Ali Alizada, a literary critic, poet and writer on the philosophy of art, sees the biggest threat to art as the growing need for it to have a function, rather than simply existing just for the sake of art. Let's hear from Ali. I am Ali Alizadeh, a senior lecturer at Monash. I teach literary studies and creative writing. I'm also a creative writer. Dr. Ali Alizadeh, welcome. People could make the argument that in times of absolute survival, arts is something that we just have to leave Mm. behind. Imagine that does happen. The world progresses with arts, leaving the public and even private sphere. What does that world look like? Well, that's that's kind of interesting. In a way, you know, um, it may not be such a bad world for the for the artist because I'm not sure if art could ever leave the private mm-hmm. space. So, you know, one of the things that I'm finding, you know, if people have to stay at home, what what are they going to do? They probably end up reading books, <laughs> you know. And and it's kind of interesting. I mean, I mean, when one looks at moments of you know massive civilizational crisis, say you know Europe at the time of the collapse of the Roman Empire. Yes, the so-called barbarians did a lot of damage. They burned down lots of libraries and so on and so forth. But a few monasteries where the monks actually preserved the books, they actually cherished the books and they became extremely valuable. So I guess there are a few different definitions of art. But if one definition is is a very expensive, high-cost activity which depends on government or private investment, then yes, that could suffer greatly. Well, we're seeing it now. So many artists are saying, all my shows have been shut down. Yeah, exactly. So that could suffer dramatically, and we can talk about that as well, especially the incomes of uh, artists who are not, you know, making, earning a living from the arts when they have to do it in other ways. Often it's casual employment, and that's going to take a huge hit. So, you know, the lives of many people are going to suffer, including that of artists. Um, But in terms of individual or private or subjective production of art, I don't think that's going to suffer necessarily. In fact, that could be that could be rejuvenated. You think it could flourish in this space that's created? Mm-hmm. I, I think so. I mean, I, I think that, you know, like I I think that, you know, there were times like when I, you know, when if, if one is really poor and you can't afford books, but you manage to get a secondhand copy of, I don't know, a favourite novel or whatever, you, cher- you cherish it. You read it a number of times. And I think there's nothing... You know, from my end as a literary artist, there's nothing better a reader can do than read a book a number of times mm-hmm. because they think about it. They they make the most of 
the use value of the literary work of another human being. I mean, I don't, I don't at all want to sort of discount the difficulties and hardships that will come uh, generally, but, but I think that the, the sort of serious question is, uh, you know, where does art come from? Does it come from investment? And, and the kind of artistic professions that we have today, they're obviously dependent parasitically on, on capital. Yes. You know, the, the, the big world of the, you know, high art uh, dealer scene is all about investment. You know, these, these people who buy these artworks of art for thousands and millions of dollars, frankly, have no idea what art is. But they know that the value of this work will go up and they will sell it and make more money. Mm-hmm. The, the, the sort of the top end work of art, especially in visual arts, is now a site of capital uh, occultation. They hide their money there and to avoid paying taxes and so on. So, I mean, that might take a hit. But again, in times of economic crisis like this, as we know, it's also time for disaster capitalism. So it's possible that not being able to uh, uh, make a profit in other ways, they might turn to the work of art again. So you think we could potentially see moving away from the pure commodification Mm -hmm. of art back to the more spiritual or creative aspect of Look, the art. That, that's, I think that's the possibility and that, that happens in times of crisis for sure, for sure. Uh, you know, we see, we see great, great flourishing of art during the Great Depression. You know, that's, that's the time of extraordinary artistic activity. So that, that's definitely a possibility. I think anything that brings people closer to the question of, well, look, do I need to make art? I mean, this is the point. If I can't do it professionally, if I can't do it for money, then will I do it? And I think the answer is yes. And why is that? Why, well, why does art question. even matter, I suppose, is the question. <laughs> well, that, that's a massive question. I mean, that's a question like philosophers have wrestled with since the, since the, you know, since the time of Plato. I mean, yes. what we know is that art is always there. Mm. Despite, no matter what happens, it's always there. It's sort of, it's, so it's clearly something to do with human nature. And, you know, for, for philosophers who have you know, thought about it, they've come up with a number of different theories. I guess they've all tried to, um, and I also try to as well, to say, it should not have an instrumental value. And, and what do you mean by that, an instrumental value? Mm. Well, that, that means it's being used for something other than for which it was it not intended for, other than that for which it was originally made. Okay. <laughs> now, very, you know, I, can instrument, I can instrumentalize this, uh, I don't know, uh, glass of water. I can drink from it. It's intended to be a container for water, but I can also do other things with it. I can... Mm-hmm. Throw it at someone as a weapon, for example. I can buy it and sell it at a profit. (laughs) These are all forms of instrumentalization. I use it as an instrument as opposed to its intrinsic value. If something uh, has its meaning so altered in the course of instrumentalization, if this glass after a while becomes nothing but, say, a weapon, after a while I will stop drinking water out of it. And and it seems to me that that's what what has happened to art. So would, what would you consider to be the use value of art? Is it, and, you know, this is, I suppose, a crass terminology, but is it feeding the soul? Would that could, be? Could be, could be. A, is that a legitimate use I, I, I think it's totally legitimate. Okay. I, I mean, you know, there's sort of the, <laughs> the problem with philosophers is that they want to keep digging deeper and deeper. So, I mean, I, there, there are many very good theories of what it's for, from Plato to Aristotle, Kant, Hegel, etc. And, and they each sort of try to get closer and closer to what the intrinsic thing is. I mean, what you said about the spiritual value, well, that's, that's, um, that's Hegel's first, uh, you know, 
famous kind of quick uh, uh, idea that art has spiritual value because in the work of art, the spirit, you know, with capital S, can actually come to pass through the materiality of an object, you know, be it a sculpture mm-hmm. or a painting or something like that. That's one of the only places it could be. Um, I would contend that that's probably sort of instrumentalization too because, you, you know, but less so, less so than somebody, you know, who blindly in the sort of art dealer market just buys something for $5 million and next week sells it for, sells it for $10 million. I mean, for that person, art has no intrinsic value whatsoever. However, for somebody who reads a poem because it gives them some sort of spiritual uh, satisfaction or writes a poem because it gives them some kind of spiritual satisfaction, that's that's still kind of closer, I think. So but you would still say that you think that's an instrumentalizing? I, I think so. So what wouldn't be a non-instrumentalizing <laughs> Yeah. Use of art. When there is an audience, how do we take away the instrumentalizing aspect? Well, I, I think that the audience can do what you know they want with the work of art. I mean, and they're free to, to you know spend millions of dollars on it. That's fine. But um, but I think that you know when I think about why, and you know these are sorts of questions. There's this um, there was this uh, famous Austrian uh, Marxist thinker called um, Ernst Fischer, and he wrote a book about, I think it was called something like Purpose of Art, so I may be uh, mistaken, but he kind of goes back to the cave paintings and he says, mm-hmm. look, why would anyone do that? Why did they, in the midst of surviving very difficult life, you know, self, self-isolated self in the caves, worried about stepping out and getting eaten by big, scary lions, why would they paint these oxes and animals on the walls? The, the, the first answer is that we don't know. <laughs> and the second one is they probably didn't know either. It's, it's not at the realm of knowledge. You know, it's much more to do with our immediate needs in the same way that you know, I may be, I don't know, feeling anxious, and then I will whistle a tune. Now, why do I whistle that particular tune? I have no idea. It's, it's, and that's why psychoanalysis has been a very, very fertile field for discussing precisely the question of what art comes from. But I think that my own theory is looking at the, you know, why we produce something in the first place. And, you know, I, I use some of the sort of young Marx's famous um, uh, 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 examples of stone cutting. Why would somebody cut stone? Well, they want to make it into a brick so that they, they can build a house with bricks. They can't do that with stone. So the act of production is a transformation of something that we get from nature. Um, in organic nature. And I think art is the same thing. We get something from our nature, from our initial encounter with the world. Generally, we might call that ideology or mythology or alienation. These are the ways we, you know, as we grow up, our parents primarily tell us, look, don't do this. Don't touch a knife. Don't be scared of God. Uh, whatever else one inherits from their parents. Well, they, they create ideology. Over time, all of that could actually alienate us fill us with fear and anxiety and all of that. Art is a way of disalienating. So, so I, I think, and I use, a, um, I, I quite like a passage that uh, from Marx's The Grundrisse. He's, this is a kind of mature Marx, and uh, he talks about, you know, in ancient Greek art, artists like Homer, they use Greek mythology as raw material. And I think that that's what artists do. They use the dominant ideologies of the time as raw material to mm. change them into something that they find useful that helps them understand the world. Right. So, so you know, for example, today, uh, if people are listening to this with, when the corona crisis is still on, write a poem about it. <laughs> write your own right. poem about coronavirus. Take the inorganic material of 
the life you're living the and fear build of something it. with exactly. it. Build your house. Exactly. I, 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 I suggest write a, write a love sonnet to somebody called Oh Beloved Corona. Why are you so horrible? <laughs> Once you do that, you become less fearful of it. Yeah. And, and that's clearly to me. Then I go back to those caves and I think, well, these are these cave painters, ordinary people. And that's key. Artists are ordinary people. They're not skilled professionals. They're in the first place, ordinary people who say, you know what, in time of scarcity, I don't know if there's going to be a big uh, buffalo for me to hunt and feed to my clan tomorrow. But in lieu of that, I'm going to paint a big buffalo. So that people will look at it and think, yep, one day we'll have a buffalo or something like that. What do you think is the greatest threat to art and artists today? I, th I think they're... Uh, accumulation and intensification of this kind of instrumentalization. I mean, I, I think there are three fields where this is happening, and this could become quite dystopian, but in a way it already is. I think one of them, is, as I mentioned before, is this kind of very very blatant commodification of art for, for shifting capital across borders, and that's, that's to me quite, quite frightening. And the fact that so much, especially of our visual arts scene, has been implicated in what is, frankly, seems to be one epic tax rot. The other one, it might be the more sort of, uh, um, if you like, the lower level of commodification, which is about consumption. Now, that's, that to me is not immediately dystopian. That might be someplace, something we have to do. But of course, its intensification, to me, could produce a culture in which um, aesthetic values, and well, I shouldn't say aesthetic, actually, when I'm talking this formally, but artistic values are being erased. And, and I mean, this to me, when I say this, people say you're being conservative, but it's not actually. This is one of the sort of key points of, of a sort of uh, a earlier Marxist tradition of, of a theory of art is that for production to have an intrinsic useful value for the maker of the work, the maker has to take pride in their work. This, the kind of the third kind of dystopian possibility is when they try to supplement supplement that by inserting an ideological nicety. Say, well, look, you know, this is a shit movie, and but hey, it's good because it combats racism, right. and that that to me is that that to me is actually quite dystopian as well because that's that brings art under the aegis of ideology, right. and that's that completely defeats the purpose of art. Because you think it should always subvert or reject ideology? Well, it should disalienate ideology, you know. I mean, it should sort of like, yeah, absolutely a good work of art can think about the question of race and so on and so forth. Uh, but to when it mimics and repeats the niceties that the consumers I would want to hear so that they can tell their friends on Twitter how virtuous they right. are, that completely defeats purpose it's not even minute marginally bad it's to me it's completely erases the possibility of art and it becomes mere propaganda mm -hmm. and that's that's you know when people hear me say they say you're a conservative when they i use the word political correctness they're like oh my god andrew bolt but let me say the first critique of political correctness in art that i've seen is from a 1936 essay by walter benjamin the great marxist he said it's not enough for a work of art to be politically correct in those exact words should also be artistically correct. Mm -hmm. It must be the best work that the artist can produce. And the first task of a radical, in his mind, Marxist, communist artist is to improve the instrument of art making, make the best fiction, and then innovate the art of storytelling, not put in some message about 
how poor the poor people are. We should feel sorry for them. To him, that's entirely bourgeois and reactionary. Mm-hmm. So no woke box ticking no, abs- Well, no, absolutely not. I mean, before the conservatives and neocons and what have you caught on on this problem, that was a Marxist problem. So then how do we tackle those issues when they have become so uh, delightfully mainstream? In some ways, maybe mm. it's a good thing. We're concerned about mm-hmm. racism and other things. But when they have been uh, taken over by uh, a box-ticking mainstream, what do we do then? (laughs) We we, we let art do what it does. Political. I mean, sorry, the the problem of racism, racism is a social problem. You can't have an artistic solution, Uh you know. Can I have an artistic discussion? uh, I don't – look, art, a work of art may initiate a discussion at at the most, but I think – Look, I think that part something else we've had certainly since the 70s and this great uh, wave of depoliticization in the West, we have actually stopped expecting our politicians to do their job and improve the world, which is what politics was supposed to be about. I mean, we expect our artists to produce more and more work art, as if I, by watching an anti-racist movies, I'm going to solve the problem of racism. It wasn't Uncle Tom's Cabin that ended slavery in America. It was a war that cost 400,000 lives. People fought and died and killed to end slavery. <laughs> it wasn't the novel that did it. <laughs> so Black Panther isn't going to save everything. Uh, you mean the movie? Movie, yeah. Absolutely not. It's reactionary, uh, aristocratic, far-right apologia for the ruling class and distort the question of race in the minds of naive viewers. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, so don't watch Black don't Panther. Don't watch Black Panther. Do <laughs> not watch away. it. <laughs> um, last question. You alluded to this earlier, but are there examples of uh, past communities where the value of art was sort of removed from society, where it was sort of stripped from society? What happened? Well, I mean, I mean, I don't think that can ever be fully done. I mean, this dystopian situation, I mean, that could be our society. Um, I, I, I think, you know, I think uh, I think ordinary people in the moments of requiring, needing to satisfy their needs have resorted to some kind of art, whether it's personal, you know, uh, construction of something at home, I don't know, arranging the photos on the mantelpiece in a particular way. I'm not a fan of the Nazis, but one has to say Nazis did not destroy art. They just destroyed certain kinds of art and they venerated other ones and distorted other ones. So the very same Nazis who you know, burned so many books and shut down so many exhibitions, were also advocating, you know, the music of Wagner and all sorts of other things. So, and they were in fact aestheticizing politics, uh, making politics itself a big sort of aesthetic spectacle. So I'm not really sure if that has ever happened. And I think this kind of uh, dystopian scenario that I've sort of uh, alluded to, which is already underway, that's not going to destroy art a significant, you know, forever, but it's certainly uh, it's, it's going to, you know, um, um, impede our immediate ability to draw on the resource of, resources of art for uh, making our lives better. Ali Alizada, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. Cheers. Let's hear from Callum. Unfortunately, due to COVID, we've had to adapt and do a number of these interviews by phone. So while occasionally the audio isn't as great as always, we promise you the content is. Hello, my name is Callum Morton. I am a professor of fine art at Monash Art Design and Architecture. Uh, I'm an artist and I'm also the director of Monash Art Projects. Callum Morton, thank you for joining us today. 
in times like this, what would you say to the question that when we can't even manage our basic necessities or when some of us, you know, are struggling to survive, can we even afford to think about art or lament its loss when there are more pressing needs to address? Well, I would argue that there is, um, this is a time when actually everyone is engaged with art more than ever. I mean, what are people doing at home? You know, when you think about it, and I'm sure you've heard this observation from many people, but um, while we're at home in lockdown, we're listening to music, we're watching Netflix where, um, you know, kids are painting and drawing um, and so on, learning musical instruments, they're turning to the very thing that we do uh, as part of our daily practice. Um, So in fact, our lives are kind of more full than ever with art at the moment. And in fact, art is the thing that helps us get through these crises. I mean, that's one of, I mean, it's often said rhetorically, but one of art's capacity to connect people, but also to give them sort of um, hope and spiritual counsel and all those things. Um, it's, we are living in a time where that is happening, of course, and it's happening in other ways. I mean, you know, of course, I know many artists who do, you know, great work on Instagram and Instagram is their kind of work, you know, social media just isn't about, you know, posting and connecting with people. But it is also, you know, there are many artists who use that as a form to make work. And so you're seeing the proliferation of all this very interesting work in that sphere as well. And so it shows that artists are always working and art is always necessary. Do you think art is under threat at the moment? I do think that we kind of loathe or hate artists and we hate art in a way. Artists probably perhaps sitting outside of the social, sitting outside of the kind of social order that we kind of understand that most people go through in their their daily lives. Um, You know, there are sort of degrees of kind of resentment. There's the kind of mythologizing of art practice. There's all sorts of reasons why this happens. You know, artists do contort themselves and arts organisations contort themselves to fit or sort of rather instrumentalising impulses of governments. If you say art is in crisis, it is in the kind of public mind, mind. But I'm not sure that it is from artists. I think artists will always continue to make work. Artists are kind of the great entrepreneurs. We talk about entrepreneurialism as this kind of catchphrase for, in business and so on. But actually artists are, I would say, one of the great entrepreneurs because they're always, you know, finding, they're always obviously working another job to support, you know, and often, often working another job to support what they do and finding ways to get what they do out into the world. If we as a society continue to devalue art um, and, and not appreciate it the way we should, what does society look like in 50 or 100 years? What would the continual degradation of the value of art in society look like? Art has existed for a long time. I mean, painting images on caves, which is such an important part of the kind of galvanisation of homo sapien communities um, and so on, art will persist regardless. I mean, we may devalue it, but somehow when artists are kind of pushed further and further outside, maybe they make extraordinary things from if they're right outside. Maybe that is their comfortable place to be. Maybe the place of always arguing and advocating for the value of artists to politicians, to whoever, to, you know, broader institutions and corporations and so on. Maybe um, that's the thing that fundamentally devalues it, that you're arguing sort of always against yourself almost. And you're always trying to push it into a kind of box that it doesn't quite fit. 
you think could eventually happen to pieces of public art? The, the pieces of art that are out in, in the public sphere, what happens to them if society doesn't see them as value anymore? Could they become sites of pilgrimage for people who still appreciate art? Do they just fall into ruin? Where do they go? Well, you know, part, I mean, art, art was always public first before it was private. I mean, privacy mm. is a very re- recent idea, you know, actually. It's not inside a gallery or a museum. So it's not, it doesn't have the, the kind of typical conventions one would have uh, uh, and codes of kind of um, reception as one would have when they enter those spaces. Um, so it's free and it's open to everyone. So it has, it can potentially have enormous impact because there's such a big audience around it all the time. Uh, and at its best, it can do, you know, interesting things. Like I mentioned at the top, you know, it's, it's, it's can symbolic, symbolically represent things. It can create new narratives about the world. It can, you know, um, like the best of art, it can reflect the world uh, like a mirror. Um, uh, it can galvanize communities. It can, you know, just, you know, add to the kind of general atmosphere of a place uh, in, uh, if you look at Clayton campus at Monash, in fact, uh, and Caulfield, those campuses, I think, the, you know, the atmosphere of those campuses has been altered quite significantly by public art. It's not, you know, of course, there's extraordinary buildings in these places by extraordinary architects, and that has created uh, an entirely different atmosphere. But buildings don't really do what public art can do. You know, buildings don't narrativize like public art does. So what would happen if those things weren't there? Yeah, I think that's one of the things about public art. Its ruin should be as much a part of its kind of origin and, you know, how it kind of slides into, in, slides into the context in which, it's, in which it is, is, it is part of it. And, um, you know, if communities love a piece of work and they want to keep it, you know, like an Anish Kapoor and they want to keep the mirror sort of shiny and they want to, you know, then the communities will do that. And that's probably testament to the fact that they value it. And if it, if it, if it falls into kind of ruin, then maybe that's a testament to the fact that they don't. In what way do you think art can save society? Well, the first thing uh, to say, I suppose, to that is you're talking about art um, in the kind of singular. And, of course, there are so many types of art practices. Um, you know, there are artists that would say, I don't, I'm not interested in saving society, I'm just trying to do my work. Mm-hmm. And how an audience responds to that is up to them. You know, that's a... I mean, personally, that's a really powerful impulse, um, you know, uh, to kind of experience those things. Um, But equally, there are other artists that, there are political artists, you know, who um, believe that art can change, that it doesn't simply reflect the world as a mirror, that it actually can be instrumental in in changing society. And, um, you know, that can involve working with marginal communities. It can be working with um, activism, you know, around climate change, around refugees and so on. And so there are so many artists who are kind of working, you know, in that way as well. Um, And so they are producing images in the service of that and producing work in the service of that. And, uh, you know, I think uh, there are many examples historically of artworks that, um, become, you know, iconic to represent a particular shift in the way we think about the world. And, um, you know, um, the world is uh, not entirely text, text-based anymore. Uh, you would argue that the world is 
since particularly with the rise of social media, a kind of highly visual world now. And so artists are very important to, um, you know, help construct uh, that kind of imagery for change. So, you know, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, and there are so many different other types of practices of participatory art that works with communities and doesn't produce any work at all. And so the plurality of kind of art practice is important to, to, to kind of remember. Callum Morton, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. That was a truly fascinating discussion. Thanks to our guests, Ali Alizada and Callum Morton. That's it for this episode. You can find more information on everything we spoke about in our show notes. And if you wouldn't mind, please rate and review this show. It really helps other people find the podcast. We'll catch you next time on What Happens Next.